I can't say that I ever got into music thinking I would make money. I definitely saw it as, you know, if I could just survive, then that was enough. Obviously, I wanted the band to grow, and, you know, the aspiration was to get as big as you could. And, you know, I, I never wanted to be, like, massively famous, but I, I always wanted a career like an Echo and the Bunnymen or someone that could just, you, you play a theater everywhere you go around the world, and you can kind of do music, but you can also live your life and no one will give a crap who you are. But it's very hard to make money doing music because the label takes everything. Then you have managers and lawyers and booking agents and everyone needs to make a living as well. And then you're on the road, so you need to stay in hotels. And if you have a tour bus, and then you have a tour bus driver. And it's kind of crazy how much money you have to make just to make the machine go. I'm John Frechette, and welcome to Best Laid Plans, the podcast that speaks to successful creatives in various industries about the moments in their careers when they had to pivot, compromise, or make a comeback when things didn't go as planned. Today's guest is Aaron Perino, best known as the frontman of the indie rock band The Sheila Divine, formed in Boston in 1997. Hailing from the same city that birthed indie rock darlings The Pixies and Dinosaur Jr., the Sheila Divine burst onto the scene in a post-Nirvana, pre-internet alternative rock landscape in which every major U.S. city still had at least one local indie record label, serving as hubs for a healthy music scene that allowed bands from across the country to tour and build a fan base the old-fashioned way, before YouTube and SoundCloud. And of course, given the mainstream success of bands like Nirvana, The Smashing Pumpkins, and Soundgarden, major labels still took an active interest in what was brewing in local music scenes. The Sheila Devine's first album, 1999's New Parade, was a critical success and modest college radio hit, spawning the breakout single, Hum. But as we'll hear today, the realities of the music business led Aaron to a series of difficult life decisions as he confronted the hard choices and sacrifices necessary to make it as a working musician. The Sheila Divine initially disbanded in 2003, and Aaron went on to helm the band Dear Leader while forging a new career in branding and advertising. Here's Aaron with his story. It was kind of a whirlwind because like from our first show till when we got signed, it was probably only like six months tops. I met this guy, Brian. He's like, I own a recording studio. You should come record. And I had won a gift certificate to the Sharper Image off of a radio station for $250. And so I kind of conned him into taking the gift certificate in lieu of payment. And he recorded our three songs. And then we got 
signed off of that. Actually, one of my friends went to this party at Cherry Disc Records, which was kind of like the cool small label in Boston at the time. And she put our tape in their tape deck as she was leaving the party. And when they were cleaning up, they played it and then they called us. And that's how we got our deal. You know, I was, what, 22, and they gave us a check for $36,000 for all of us, but then the lawyer took his cut, and then the manager got his cut, and then I think we each got like $8,000, and I was like, this is the best, you know, and that was what we had to live on until we made another record. When we got our booking agent, she got us on the Morrissey tour, and that was just like this crazy coup that she did it. And I remember just freaking out because the Smiths were my favorite band in high school. So that was like a dream. Touring with him was not quite a dream. He's definitely high maintenance, and his politics now are pretty depressing. I think the touring aspect of it is not as glamorous as it seems. I assume if you're Ariana Grande or something, touring is a lot better than your average band. Because for us, it was basically sitting in a van for seven hours a day driving. And then you get to a venue, set up your stuff and then wait, play your show and then do it again. You're not seeing the towns. You're not doing anything. You have no money. We had the opportunity to go to China, and so we did this like tour of China, then we went to Europe, and then we did a U.S. tour. It felt like it was kind of going down. The crowds were just becoming more and more sparse. It just became not fun. We played in Milwaukee, and there were like two people there, and Jim was trying to get me like pumped up because I was just not happy. And he like pushed me, and my face hit this microphone, and it started bleeding, and I got pissed, and I just like threw my guitar down. And then we actually got into a scuffle on stage. I mean, it was like a fake fight, but we were just so frustrated. Our guitarist, Colin, was like, I'm done, you guys are idiots. And we kind of just decided the band was over. And then at the same time, I was in a relationship and I had to kind of make a decision there as well, like wanting to like start a family and get married and all of those things. And so trying to figure out how I could do music and have that life. And I kind of had to choose. And then, you know, once you make that choice, then that takes real money. Your priorities change at that point and then shit gets real. I felt guilty almost that I was like 30 plus and I still cared about music so much. I really didn't want to be that guy that, you know, who's just like, yeah, I'm like going to do my band thing. It's not going to happen. What was I looking for? What did 
So it took a long time for me to be comfortable. And now, like, I look at artists like Nick Cave, and it, like, gets almost better with age. I'm cool with it now, and, like, I could see myself as a 50-year-old person writing songs. I mean, I would always compare, like, how I was doing to my friends, but honestly... I think one of the reasons I quit was my friend Nate Albert, who is the guitarist in the Boss Tones. He told me like the reason he quit the Boss Tones was they had sold a million records and he was just like, how come Green Day sold three million records? Just the unfillable void. I was at a much lower level, but I just felt like no matter where I got, like it probably wouldn't have been enough. I don't know if I would do anything different because I just don't think anything would happen. I mean, all of my other friends who are in bands that I was touring with, they had to make that same kind of realization in their own way. I feel like with the way the music industry works, you know, you have that one record to like make it happen. And if it doesn't, then it's kind of over. Even though, you know, music felt like, oh, I wasted all this time. I owe my entire ad career to music because that's how I got it. So I feel like if you follow your passion, it will lead you to something. I was doing Dear Leader and my friend John Dragonetti was producing a record. He's like, hey, you want to come to dinner? I'm meeting my friend from England. He's a strategic planner. It turned out it was this guy, Gareth Kay, who's like the world's biggest music fan. And we totally hit it off. And he's like, you'd be a great strategic planner. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Uh, and he's like, oh, it's just like understanding people you've toured. And he's like, we actually have the Napster client. You could work on that. So he gave me my first job in advertising at this agency, Modernista, which was like the Matador records of ad agencies. And it really was like, very exciting for me. I often joke that my first trip in advertising was more rock and roll than all my years in rock and roll. The reality of a band is you're four dudes in the Holiday Inn Express, you know, eating Wendy's. And my first foray in advertising was doing like some consumer research where like a black car picked me up. I flew. Then I stayed at the Hotel Rivington and they upgraded me. And then I ate at like some amazing restaurant, like, you know, filet. And it was like, this is the, this is rock and roll. To me, trying to sell in a creative idea, it's very hard when you have to like get through your creative directors, then the clients, like a million steps before your idea is like watered down. And, you know, if you get to make it, it's like the greatest achievement. But I felt like in media, I could go to like a content partner, like a vice or a pitchfork and then sell it to the client as an idea and they'd produce it. And as long as it had like the media numbers behind it, you'd get the stuff made. Dear Leader was recording at um, Rubber Track Studio, the Converse thing. And I saw the CMO, Jeff Contrell, there. And I just introduced myself because my friend Gareth, my first boss, knew him. And we just got to talking and he was like, you know, you should come work in digital here, like, you know, helping make content for music, art and skateboarding. So it was like this dream, combining like everything I loved with music and advertising. And so for six months, it was 
super rosy and amazing. And I was working with all these great artists and doing these amazing projects. And then Nike did a reorg and fired everybody and closed Rubber Track Studio. And that was kind of the end of it. And um, I'm unemployed now. the new album when I was going into it Jim had basically told me he was quitting the band he was done no drama he's like I live on Cape Cod now I really like my life I don't need this anymore I wanted to spend as much time making this album as I did New Parade because it always felt like I was always rushed to do something. And I was like, I don't care if it takes me two years. I want to put out something that has the sonic quality and is like something I'm proud of. So that was kind of the way Brian and I approached it, who's my guitarist and also kind of my partner in the studio. It was really, it was amazing. And we're assigned to a label in Belgium and Holland. And like, I kind of got that aspect of my career going again, which before COVID was amazing because we were playing really amazing shows and I was relishing that aspect. It's very doable to do those countries with your life because it only takes like a week. But now that Jim's left, I'm sort of just figuring out where I'm going to take the band or I want to continue but I know it won't be the same. I would say my confidence has uh, wavered immensely in the past like few years, not from music, but just career-wise, because I feel like I was on this trajectory. I mean, I was a VP at Converse, you know, running the global social and like content. And since then, I have to stay in Boston because my kids are here. And, you know, your options as far as like what's available once you get to a certain level it's it's hard. Like I could apply to like just a strategy position and they'll be like, oh, you don't want this. You're too high up. And then I don't have the book to be like a creative director. So <laughs> it's over. I got to open a restaurant or go back on tour. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Dear Leader and hear more from the Sheila Divine on Bandcamp. Aaron achieved his goal of recording and releasing 50 new Sheila Divine songs during the pandemic, as well as releasing the debut self-titled album by Aaron and the Lord, a collaboration between Aaron and multi-instrumentalist Stephen Lord, featuring vocals by another 90s indie rock stalwart, Tanya Donnelly of Belly and the Breeders. Instead of opening a restaurant, Aaron found a job as a strategist for Hill Holiday, a major advertising agency in Boston. 
Best Laid Plans is produced by Todd Luoto and myself. Music for this episode is by The Sheila Divine and Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork by Tim Ahern. You can find us on the web at bestlaidpod.com. And if you liked what you heard today, consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks for listening. Ah,